We're going to look at Hebrews 9 together this morning. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews together from chapter 1, verse 1, and today we find ourselves in chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. You guys remember this device? Go ahead and throw that, uh, that image up there. Anybody recognize what this is? We, we talked about old technology last week. You remember that and how indispensable Google was? Well, this, for those of you that were born, I don't know, I don't know what year, but it would have been, I guess, a while ago now. Uh, this is a caller ID device. And everybody, whenever these were starting to come out, probably had a little bit of a different one. This is one that I thought was pretty generic. And, um, you know, <laughs> there was a time when you didn't know who was calling you. Some of you guys are like, what? And I'm not talking about back when they had that black little doorknob thing they put on their ears and they're like, hello? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, it was not that long ago that we didn't know who it was that was ringing us and who was calling us. And then this device came on the scene called a caller ID. And it was your way of knowing, based on their phone book um, entry, who was calling you from their landline. And then cell phones just shook up the business. And then we just said Birmingham, Alabama or Jackson, Mississippi. You didn't know who was calling you at that point. And so obviously things kind of developed from there. But we didn't know who was on the other end for a long time. And you had to just memorize phone numbers or write them down and not put them in your little device. In fact, the word voicemail didn't even exist until like, what, 20, 15, 20 years ago? It was just called an answering machine, right? There was no voicemail. That was a new creative. Voicemail is what we call that now. That didn't use to always be a thing. And also, but how about the anxiety you get now when you don't know who's on the other end? It used to just be normal. But now you're like, I don't know this number. They probably want to kill me. I just won't answer the phone. Well, there used to be a day that you never knew who it was, and you just answered it. And so now we have this crippling anxiety because we don't know who's on the other end. It's good to know the ID of the caller. This morning, I titled the message, Caller ID. The author of Hebrews refers to us as the called, Christian people, those who have faith in Jesus. He refers to us as people who are called by God. God being the caller and us being the called. God's powerful, life-changing, and soul-resurrecting call on the life of believers. But the reason I said that today, caller ID, is because we do not have to guess who's on the other end. God has made himself extremely knowable. He has made himself extremely knowable to us, very much so known. The book of Hebrews, I would argue, is all about that. It's all about knowing God and specifically knowing Christ as the greater, which you see at the bottom of the screen behind me. It's kind of been the theme of the whole book is that God is simply greater, greater than everything and anything and anyone or anything that could possibly rival him can't rival him because he and Christ Jesus is greater. In the last couple of weeks, and this week especially, we're going to look at blood and sacrifice. That's kind of why I chose that background image. We looked at this last week, but, and we sung about that already, about the value of the blood, of the pouring out of a life sacrifice being the word for that. Guys, this is going to be as if it were different than any other one. This is a very, very gospel-rich sermon. And so I hope that you're excited about that. I am. It's a very gospel-saturated message. So we're going to see it now in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Let's look at it together. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 
For whenever, for whenever a commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and, was, and sprinkled, blood, uh, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both the tent, sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessel used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by, sacrifice, by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The very first word in verse 15 is that word we see from time to time, therefore. And you probably heard this before, but I was always told if you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. It means that it's following something that needs to be looked at with what's before it, right? And so he's saying, therefore, built on this argument that's already been made. Well, what's it there for? Really, this is looking at what we looked at last week, verses 11 through 14. And I'm not going to revisit that because I visited that, like, extensively. We were there a while, right? Uh, and so I'll just quickly summarize. What we saw in verses 11 through 14 is that Jesus appeared as a greater high priest, meaning a greater mediator who's brought a, a better thing. He brought greater access, not into a temple or a tabernacle, little tent room that represents the dwelling place of God. He has brought access to God himself, greater access. He has brought a greater sacrifice. He's brought greater redemption. He's brought greater purification even, which we looked at again last week, not purification of the flesh, but purification of our hearts, our consciences. And so what the author of Hebrews now is saying is, therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. It's a new way. Therefore, he is bringing about something new. Now, to us, if you remove kind of a scriptural mindset from it, just think about the word mediator. What comes to mind? Well, to us, a professional mediator, which if you're a parent, you are a, a mediator, right? But a professional mediator are really professional compromise finders. That's what a mediator does. They say, okay, you have these demands and Obviously, those demands are not going to be met. You have these demands, and this person doesn't want to give in to your demands. Let's try to meet somewhere in the middle. That's what a mediation is. And a mediator is to come between two parties at conflict and say, let's figure out a way that we can compromise and come together and find a compromised solution. Yesterday, this happened in my home with bouncy balls. We had three bouncy balls. One of them was superior. The other one was rainbow colored. And the other one was kind of crummy. And so the Three kids were fighting over the bouncy balls, and Zion owns, I think, all of the bouncy balls, doesn't he? Or maybe the little one is Ian's. Who knows? They, we just buy stuff, and then they just say, it's mine, 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 and it's a war zone in the Hughes house, right? But Zion had a bouncy ball. I know it was his, and it was extremely bouncy, which, of course, we all know is extremely awesome whenever you have an extremely bouncy ball. This is a lesson we're getting into now. There was one that was large, but it didn't bounce hardly at all. And so Shiloh got the shaft and got that one. She got the, the not-so-bouncy ball. And then Eden got the one that was rainbow-colored, because if you know Eden, she gets the one that's rainbow color. 
But this is unsatisfactory for Shiloh, and so I'm the mediator who has to deal with the screaming match over these ridiculously dumb bouncy balls, right? And I just took them. Just take them, because I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not, I'm not going to fig- figure out a compromise between all these parties that are aggressively coming at one another. But listen, with God, we have a problem. The problem is that God is holy. You may think, that's a problem? For sinful people it is. It's a problem that God is a holy God. Not only is he holy, he's just, meaning that he always gives the right judgment. And for us who have fallen short of the glory of God, a just and a holy God is a problem if we want to be in eternity with him. And so we need mediation between a holy God and sinful humanity. In other words, this whole mediation by compromise thing, it doesn't work with God. God's holiness cannot be compromised, and man's sin must be addressed to its absolute full. The answer is sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's why verse 22 says, and we're kind of jumping ahead here, but that's what it says in the second part of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins. God gave this thing to say, there's only one way that these two parties, God and man, can come together, and it has to be because something or someone has to die. And using that word blood may confuse a very simple principle, but I think you understand sacrifice better than you realize. Maybe you're a baseball fan, and you know what a sacrifice bunt is, or a sacrifice fly. What is that? If a sacrifice fly, somebody hits the ball deep, and that person can tag and, and go, right? That person takes the fall. They, they become out. They get called out so that another person can advance. You hear the sacrifice there, right? One person takes the fall so that somebody else can get ahead. That's what a sacrifice is. And so in the, in the Bible, a biblical sacrifice is a death in place of a death. It's a death so that somebody else can advance and have life. You hear that, right? It's, it's really not a very complicated concept. It's very simple. We just kind of get complicated by some of the terminology here. But you got to remember, this wasn't written to, you know, 21st century baseball America. It was written to Jewish Christians. And so in their context, this, these words made a lot of sense. They had something called the Old Covenant, an old agreement way back in the Old Testament. The priests, back in their Old Testament, mediated a covenant of works or a covenant of the law. It was hopeless, though, because no person could achieve perfection. And so they couldn't get glory. They couldn't get to heaven. They certainly couldn't have access to God. And so when people failed, God said, bring a sacrifice. So they did. They would fail and fail and fail and sin, just like you and I do. And they would bring a sacrifice. The only problem with that is, Their sacrifices were endless. They were constantly having to bring them because we constantly sin. And so they were given this tent, this tabernacle, this temple even after that, that was a physical manifestation of that reminder that they had a sin problem. Not a removal of sin, but a reminder of the ongoing barrier between them and a holy God. And so what's happening here in verse 15 is that God is saying, through the author of Hebrews, there's a new way. No longer a barrier, there's a new way. A greater mediator has arrived. Not by works of the law, but by grace. Not endless animal sacrifices, but once for all, the eternal sacrifice of the Son of God. Not in a temple made with hands, but in the true presence of a holy God. And so today, I want you to get to know him. Caller ID. Us who are the called. Knowing the God who has called us. We're going to see this in a couple of ways, and the second way is going to have sort of three sub-points underneath it, and you'll see what I mean in just a second. But if you're taking notes, the first thing that I want us to see is that what we see in our caller is a will and a way maker. He has given us a will, and he has made a way. A will and a way maker. 
Down in verse 15, we see this kind of already jump off the pages, that God has a will. We're going to see that down in verse 16 or so, but also that he has made a way. That's what these verses of summary are really all about. I'm going to look at them real quick. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, as we've just now said, so that those who are called, that's us, those who are in Christ, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. There it is, right? A sacrifice has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Again, your biggest problem is not just that you are a sinner. Our biggest problem is not just that we are sinners, but that God is just. He is holy. We have a legal problem. We have a legal problem with a just judge. Sin has legal demands. That's why Paul said the wages of sin is death. That's why in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't eat of the tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Because sin has legal demands, and God is a legally justice-driven God. Christ's mediation, then, is legal, and it's satisfactory. The result, so I have a, go ahead and put that graphic that I, that I gave you a minute ago up there. I think we have that. Not, the, not that one. We already hit that one pretty good. The one with the arrows uh, pointing it. There we go. Okay, so what we're going to see in this verse, in verse 15, are three things. He mentions an inheritance. He mentions the word redemption or redeem, redeemed. And then he mentions the word uh, death. Somebody else has died in your place. Now, here's why those words matter. The result, which I put at the top, the third thing, the result, he says in verse 15, is that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's the result so that you may receive the inheritance. But there are things that have to happen before that can happen, right? There are things that have to occur before we can receive that inheritance. He says right after that, receive the the eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them, okay? So the death is at the bottom. That's the first action that happens. The second thing is redeem. Now, you may hear the word redeem and think of a lot of different things, but biblically speaking, the word redeem was a slavery term. It meant that slaves were sold to a master and they required a ransom payment in order to be freed from their master. Well, the Bible calls us slaves to sin. Sin is our master. And the wages of sin is what? Is, is death. That's right. And so what happens is that the payment that we owe is our death. The wages that we inherit from sin is death. Now hear me though. This is the gospel. Good news here. Jesus gave his life as a ransom payment to free the captive. That's the gospel. Jesus brought a death, a redeeming payment Right? To satisfy the, the wages of sin, which is death. He brought that payment so that inheritance is no longer for us who are in Christ judgment, but our inheritance is life. It's eternal life. That's the transaction of Calvary. And so what's going to happen next in verses 16 and 17 is that the author is going to give his own illustration of this, which that may bog down, but this is a really good illustration I want to point you to. Look at verse 16 and 17. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. What he's saying is that we in Christ receive an inheritance because of the will that preceded it. Many of you have a will. Maybe you've sat down with an attorney and said, I want to write up a will because I've got these things that I want to happen whenever that that needs to happen, right? And so you have written up a will and you have one kind of in a safe somewhere. Well, what kind of things are in a will? 
things of great value, right? Things like maybe property or a house or possessions or guardianship or some, a few precious moments dolls or Pokemon cards or Beanie Babies, you know, things of value. Just kidding. How about that phrase? Don't take the tag off those Beanie Babies because then they'll be worth nothing. I got a newsflash for you. They're already worth nothing. Anyway, <clears throat> well, that's what you put in a will, things of value. Well, what does a will do? Well, it instructs who gets what? The inheritance, right? Now, here's the most important question, though. When does a will take effect? When the creator of that will dies, right? A will doesn't take effect until that person breathes their last breath and dies. In other words, death is the catalyst of a written will. Now, the author's point is, imagine that God has written a will. The contents of that will is that those who by faith trust in the saving work of his son Jesus receive by his death payment, by his resurrection, John 3, 16. They will not perish but have eternal life. That's the will of God. That's the written will of God. Jesus' death was the green light then of his will going into action. You hear the illustration, right? Jesus died, and so the will that he had written, it became a reality. The death redeemed and promised an inheritance of eternal life, from eternal perishing condemnation to eternal life. In fact, Paul speaks of this identity shift. That word redeem is really important because it talks about slavery to sin, right? Paul talks about this so wonderfully in Galatians 4, verse 7, when it says this. So, you are no longer a slave. Slave to what? Slave to sin. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We receive something else other than death, don't we? We receive eternal life. The image of being called, which is back in verse 15, I think sort of structures the whole thing that we see. The image of called, for me, it often brings me to the burial site of that guy, Lazarus. You guys know that story, right? I think it's John chapter 11. We looked at that not too long ago. Lazarus was Jesus' friend and a friend of many of the people that Jesus was friends with. Lazarus died, and people were devastated over it. Jesus is out of town. He shows up. They're saying, where were you? He's been dead for four days. Jesus, what were you doing? If you'd been here, he wouldn't be dead. They buried him in a tomb, a small tomb with a rock in front of it, similar to the one that Jesus temporarily, just like Lazarus, was occupying, right? There was nothing, hear this, there was nothing that Lazarus could do to restart his own heart. Nothing. There was nothing that his loved ones could do to breathe life into his lungs. But you know what Jesus did when he, got, when he showed up? He said, Lazarus, come out. And you know what happened? That dude walked out of there, y'all. He walked out of there. You know why? Because the caller called him. He couldn't resuscitate himself. He couldn't make himself come to life. And that's the whole point, is that Jesus is the author of life for everyone that believes in Jesus. He is the author of it. We are called, but he is the caller. Lazarus woke up because the words of Jesus cried out to him. When the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, I believe that. I believe it means we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot revive our own souls. We are without hope. We are without a way. But Jesus made a way when there was no way. And God's written will, this is good news. God's written will, you know, that says this is what I want to happen. You may have a written will and it's like, man, I hope that this, this attorney knows what he's talking about because I know the government wants this money. You hope it's airtight, right? And who knows, one day you won't figure it out, but your people you leave behind will. And you hope that it's airtight. Listen to me. God's will is forever, eternally airtight, and no one can undo it. It's perfect. It is permanent. It is airtight 
tight and sealed. It's untouchable. We praise God that he submits to no one. And when he calls you and says, you have an inheritance, it's as good as gold, baby. The author is making an illustration here. And this new way, this will, this covenant, it could not begin until, again, Jesus' death greenlit it and set it into action. And so what the author is doing now is he's going to segue it and say, that's not just, remember, Jewish audience, he's saying that's not just true of Jesus. His death didn't just greenlight the new covenant. He says death greenlit the old covenant. He's saying, what I'm saying is not a new thing. It happened in the old as well. Look at verses 18 through 21. 18 says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So he's saying this isn't something new. I mean, it's new, but it's not new. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, this is from Exodus 24, by the way. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Those are just purifying things. And sprinkled both the book itself and the people. I know that sounds graphic, but we're getting somewhere. Saying this is the blood of the covenant that God, is, that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the place of meeting, and all the vessels used in worship. Again, the author is illustrating by comparison. God had instructed them in the Old Testament, their forefathers, their ancestors, to build what they called a tent of meeting. Meeting what? Not meeting each other. It wasn't like the fellowship hall. It was a tent of meeting with God. If they wanted to meet God, they had to go into this special place and do it in a special way. God among them. But what good, what good is a tent of meeting for those that in their sin cannot approach God? They needed to bring blood. Back in Exodus 24, which I alluded to just a moment ago, I'm going to read something. Exodus 24, 6 through 8 says, And Moses took half of the blood, this is after they'd slaughtered oxen, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, don't miss the word covenant there, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Yeah, right. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Why does that matter? Because if it was going to be a tent of, quote-unquote, meeting with God, access to God, it had to be first a place where something had died in their place. And nothing's changed. If we want access to God, it must be because we are covered in the blood of someone or something that has died in our place. We're getting somewhere now, aren't we? That's why he says in verse 22, just right after that, he says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. You got to be purified because we're sinners. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Israel could only enter into covenant relationship with God because they were sprinkled with blood. Defilement had to be renewed or removed, but that system was flawed, as we've already seen at great length, and so I'm not going to look into that anymore. But the point of the author is that we, too, need to be sprinkled. I thought that sounds graphic. He's not talking about literally. It's not that like if you weren't at Calvary and didn't catch something off of the cross that you're not. That's not what he means. Figuratively speaking, we have to be covered in a death payment to satisfy the death payment. We've got to be covered. And the author of Hebrews is saying, but we had a better sacrifice, better cleansing, and far greater access than some little tent. We have access to the throne of an eternal God in an eternal place of heaven. Thus, he says in verse 23, it was necessary, which we're going to get to in just a second. But that's the second thing that I want to look at this morning. And that is that our God, who's making himself known, isn't just a one that makes a will and is a way maker. He's also an appearance maker. He's an appearance maker. Now, we already know that he's made himself known in many ways before Christ. 
and then in the person of Christ, but there will come a day when Jesus makes himself known in the flesh once again, which we're going to get to in just a few moments. There's three things that I want to look at underneath this number two, that he's an appearance maker. In fact, there's three word, times that we see in this passage that word appear or appearance in verse 24, 28, and then, let's see, no, 20, 24, 26, and 28. But the first thing that I want you to see is his first appearance is on our behalf in the presence of God. On our behalf in the presence of God. Both of those elements are just wild, man. On our behalf? That's amazing. On our behalf, but also in the presence of God. And that, the, those aren't my words, by the way. I took those straight out of verse 24, which we're going to look at now. On our behalf in the presence of God, verse 24, amazingly, it says this. For Christ has entered, what a grand entrance, not into the holy places made with hands, not a tent, not a temp, temple, which are copies of the true things, not the real thing, they're just copies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. On our behalf. He says, not made with hands, not copies. It's the real thing. Not just a shadow. The real reality. There was a movie from 2001 called Zoolander. You guys familiar with Zoolander? Raise your hand. Anybody familiar with Zoolander? Let me see him. All right. So Zoolander is an incredibly dumb movie. It's also incredibly hilarious. It's about a male model who's brainwashed into becoming a sleeper assassin. That sounded a lot less silly before I said it. That's actually a really silly premise for a movie. I realize that. His name is Derek Zoolander. Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller. He is enthusiastic in one of the scenes about a uh, charity initiative that he's wanting to be uh, creating. It's a center for children's literacy, and he calls it the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good and Want to Learn to Do Other Stuff Good Too. That's his uh, charity. There's a, the villain of the, the movie's name is Mugatu. He's played by Will Ferrell. He's the villain. And in, in, in a certain sense, he agrees to fund the project. Again, he's ultimately manipulating Derek Zoolander, but he agrees to fund the project, and he's excited in one of the scenes to show Derek a model of the construction. And that clip I'd like for you to see now. That's good. That's good. That's good. All right. All right. So why? 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 All right. So in that clip, here's what I want you to see. It was just a model, right? Obviously. And even if it was three times that size, it, that's just absurd to think. No, it's, it's just a model, right? But here's what I, what I see in that clip. 
that model is not meant to be the actual. And that's what Mugatu has written all over his face. He's like, are you crazy? Obviously, that's not meant to be the real thing. But Derek is so delusional that he's thinking, this can't do what you're talking about. It's not big enough. If It has to be at least three times the size, which is crazy talk, right? He's confusing the model for the actual in its function. And that's, I think, a really good analogy for what the author of Hebrews is trying to get the Hebrew audience to understand. He says, those are copies, they, they can't do what you need them to do. They're, it's just a model. They're, they're just shadow. And so they're thinking, oh, we got to have this thing. If we can bring these offerings. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you need a better way. And they're thinking, well, we could just make this one a little bit bigger. No, no, no. There is no temple that human beings could create that could gain access to God. They actually tried. It's called Babel. Nothing could gain access to a holy God. And the things on earth that the Hebrew audience was kind of obsessing over, the author of Hebrews is simply saying, that model is a copy. It's not the actual. And it's foolish to think that the model could actually serve the purpose of the actual dwelling place, the presence of God. The emphasis then is on the superiority of Christ's sacrifice to provide an even more amazing access to an even more amazing reality. Guys, Jesus' sacrifice is better because it doesn't usher its recipients behind a temple curtain. It ushers us into the heavens, into eternity with a holy God with which we have conflict only restored by the blood of Jesus. Very important is realizing that the presence of God for us cannot be a place of our present or future worship if it isn't first a place of substitutionary sacrifice, blood. These things matter. You and I cannot go to heaven unless someone goes before us and lays down the death payment so that you and I don't have to pay it. Every time that you come here, Every time that you pray, and one day when you enter into glory, God willing, if you are a Christ follower, you figuratively come to God, even today in this place. If you want to be a worshiper today, as you leave, you want to be a worshiper, you have to figuratively, every single moment that you want to approach God, you are figuratively carrying with you blood. You figuratively are carrying with you something that has died, someone that has died in your place that you can access him. Thank God that that blood is not your own. Thank God that he has provided a substitute to go in your place. That is the good news of the gospel, church. Can we just thank God for that? Amen. Amen. On our behalf, in the presence of God, the second thing underneath that second point is that he's made an appearance once for all to put away sin. Once for all, to put away sin. And that again, that phrase is straight from verse 26, and it's so loaded with just good, meaty doctrine. He did it once. He did it for all. To do what? To put away sin and its wages. Look at verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> it says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once again, an appearance, a great and amazing appearance. Not repeatedly, he says. Not every year, he says. Not the blood of animals, he says. Guys, we have a great high priest who has gone not only as the mediator, but he's gone as the sacrifice. He doesn't have to go continually. He goes once, and it's done. You have something on the back of your vehicle that you have to do once a year. 
right? You go and you get the little sticker and you walk over to your license plate and you try to put it on the correct place. You ever put it on the wrong thing? You ever have a month sticker that you accidentally put over the number and you're like, I'm the dumbest person in the world? I did that. That was me. I did that. And I felt like a big dummy. But we do that, right? We, we go and get this little sticker to renew our license plate. And what does it do? It clears you for one year from legal punishment. That's what it does. It clears you for one year from legal punishment, a tag renewal. Wouldn't it be sweet if there was a lifetime sticker? I just got about one. Lifetime sticker, pop, I put that thing on there, and we're done. That's exactly what this is, church. This is Jesus. He is the lifetime sticker that there, is no, there are no legal ramifications for permanently. Where the Old, sac- Old Testament sacrifice is good, they were about as good as your annual payment for that annual sticker. But they had to be re-upped, and they had to be re-upped, and they had to be re-upped. Guys, they avoided punishment for one more year and one more year, but Jesus did not go repeatedly. He went once. In verse 26, it says, he did it once for all. Those words, for all, please don't miss them. Once for all. You know, in the old covenant, access to God in the Holy of Holies was only granted to one man called a high priest. Even in the holy places, it was only gathered to one group of people called the priesthood. There were only the holy men could come to God. But did you hear me say, once for all? Pastors are not the only people that can talk to God. Sunday school teachers are not the only people that can talk to God. Felons who have turned and given their lives to Jesus can approach a holy God. Rapists can go, fall on their knees, give their lives to Jesus, and turn to a holy God who embraces them and accepts them. Drug addicts who turn from their sin and give their lives to Jesus can approach a holy God. Do you hear how radical that is? For all. And I think that means all. But some of you today need to hear the word once. I, we, need to hear the word once. Not just for all, but once for all. I don't know about you, and I think I speak for many people. Maybe, I don't know, but I can just speak for myself. My relationship with God can feel so murky and plagued by my own sin Thanks be to God that I am closer to him now than I was when I first believed when I was 15. But I'm going to tell you something. The closer that he and I become, just relationally, the more I realize just how unwelcome I am apart from the blood. It's a weird thing. The closer I get, the more I realize I don't belong unless he has done something to change that. I realized how far I would be from him, if not for him. Once. One time he did it. You know, we've seen a lot of fruit in our church lately. We're, we're baptizing people. We're, we've got several families that are, have joined the church or asking about joining the church, individuals that are doing the same. And it's amazing. And, and to be honest with you, it's very overwhelming. I, I don't... I'm not doing anything differently. In fact, I'm preaching a book that is very boring, if not for the life-giving details that God writes on our hearts. It seems, on the surface, it's very boring. We're talking about blood people. It's kind of boring stuff. I mean, it's not, but you know what I mean. It's overwhelming to see the fruit that God is producing right now, knowing that it's, it's void of anything special 
that we're doing to make that happen. We're not making that happen. We've begun to reach especially many either new or young believers. When I say young believers, I don't mean young people. I mean young believers. They may be 55 years old. They're still young believers. And we're reaching a lot of those. And, and you may be one of them who has now sort of had this resurgence of wanting to be in church and wanting to follow Jesus. And following Jesus, by the way, is a choice that you make every day. It's not just a salvation decision. It's every day a choice to walk with him. And we're starting to reach you, that, that this is new to you. And there are many of you that have been walking with him for a long time. And thank God for your faithfulness. But I know that you've noticed, those of you that I just mentioned, you've noticed that there's a, a core and identity shift, not an identity, but a, a personnel shift here in our body, which is really exciting. Because we're starting to reach people with the gospel. Now listen, fellowship, and I didn't intend to go into much detail here, but I will. Fellowship has had, and I can't speak for before I've been here, but since I've been here, and, and, and shout out to you, Chris, and to the praise team, and, and to our deacons for their service, and not wanting to, to run things, but serve the people through all things, and, and my message is I want to preach the gospel over everything. This church has a firm gospel foundation, a firm, firm, firm. If you're looking for a church family, you have found a very, very healthy one, and I don't say that about every church that I have pastored, and I hope not will pastor. I want to be here for a very, very, very long time, but that is not true of most churches, even in our county. You can't call them healthy, but this is a healthy church, and you know why? It's not because of our programs. It's not because of the staff, primarily. It's not because of the deacons, primarily. It's not because of the teachers or whatever. It's because we know that apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We can come into this room broken because that's the only way that we can come and be healed. Here's why I say that. I've been wrestling this week, and more than this week. We ain't got time for this. I'm a people pleaser. And so I'm not afraid to make anybody upset and make you mad. That's what a leader has to do. But I also really want to make you happy. And so it's a, how's that for a wrestling match? That's where all these gray hairs are coming from. And this right here. But I'm, here's the wrestling that I've been doing is I'm wondering, am I shortchanging? Are people, you, who are further along in your walk, that you want neat topics or neat ideas or, man, there's a buddy of mine who pastors in the county and he's just like always got awesome, cool things going on. He's very creative and I asked God, why did you lead me to Hebrews? Because it's so confusing and over our heads at times. And God just He just hit me with a realization that you don't need all that. You just need the gospel every day. And there's a lot of things to be seen here, but if you can say a lot of things about the book of Hebrews, but one thing you can't say is that the gospel's not on every single page. And so every week, I feel like I'm saying the same thing. But I guess that's because we need it. That's the, you can't get to God 
No one in this room is good enough. And if you feel like, no matter what, I can't get to God. I've, I've lived such a horrible life, and I've, got, I've done so many bad things. I'm here to tell you there is a way, because he is the way. When I say we need the gospel every day, and I think those of you that are maybe further along in your faith, and I'm like, am I really doing you any favors? Am I teaching on subjects or topics or things that you want to hear? You need the gospel. I need the gospel. The gospel is not just good news for those who are needing to be saved. It's the power of God for those that are being saved. It's the power of God for those that will be one day delivered from this world and go into the next you don't, need to, you don't need the gospel just for salvation. It's not just an evangelism tool. It is your lifeguard tool. It is the thing that gets you through every single day because every day, I don't know about you, I sin. And every day when I put my head on my pillow, I need to be reminded that there was one that stood in my place so that I can join him in his. I need it every single day, and I think that you do too. And so I feel bad at times because I'm not doing all the, the neat things. We as a church aren't doing all the neat things. We're not, we're not doing a lot. But I want nothing more than for our Awana, our Sunday school, our nursery, our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our preaching ministry, our music ministry, all of it. At the end of the day, let it just be gospel. It's enough. In the New Testament church, in the first century, they didn't have Sunday school teachers. They had the gospel. In fact, they didn't have most of your Bible. But they had the gospel. Guys, we live in a world of such despair, and you come here once again, and I just want to tell you something. I'm so happy to say this. You who are in despair, you get to come here every week and hear me, not because of me, but hear me through this, hand you the beacon of hope. It's such a hopeless world, but man, we have hope. Gosh, we have hope. Thank you, God. Once, he did it once, and I want to it's, it's so important because we feel like we got to earn it and gain it. And it's like, am I losing God's favor? Does he still love me? Once, one time, that's it. It's over. It is finished. That's why Jesus said it is finished. And at the end of the ages, his third appearance is the third thing that I want you to see. He's coming a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting. And I know we're going long now because I started crying like a baby, but whatever. A second time to save those who are eagerly waiting. Our salvation is past, present, and future. It's past because Christ accomplished salvation on the cross. It's present because we are saved right now and united with him right now. And it's future because we will be saved, and this is what it's saying here, we will be saved from this broken world into eternal rest and peace and communion and freedom at the return of Jesus. Future, past, present, and future. Verses 27 and 28 then say, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus died. He was resurrected. He has ascended. And his next coming will not be to die again, but to usher in the final victory of eternity. I'll have to check my sources on this, but a pretty reliable statistic is that 100% of people currently breathing are one day going to die. Pretty reliable statistic, I think. We have an appointment, and you may be bad with appointments, but there's one you're not going to miss, and it's your death date. It's appointed, and it's going to happen one day. Death is not just a natural process in this world. We treat it that way. It's more than just a natural process. Death is part of the divine judgment on sin. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Every one of us, we're on a one-way path toward a decaying body that will result in death. Death is not just a natural process. It is a verdict. People die. 
And we will one day face the music of eternity. And for many, it will be the song of torment and pain. But for you, if you have faith in Christ, if you belong to him, it can be the song of salvation. That's why he says we eagerly wait, not dreadfully await. We eagerly wait. Why? Because one day, pain will be no more. And there are some people in here that are dealing with some pain. Sickness will be no more, and there are people in here and out of here that want to be in here that are dealing with some terrible sickness. Disease will be no more. Death will be no more. Loss will be no more. Some of you guys have lost recently or in the past, and you just are struggling coping with it, or you're one day soon going to lose. One day loss is going to be no more. The struggle is going to be no more. Every funeral that you go to, and you may go to a lot of them, every obituary that you read, every loss that you encounter, let it all remind you that death is a present reality, but that death has its own God-assigned expiration date. Death's going to die. For us, the grave has no power over us. The grave has no power over us. You may fear dying. It's a common thing to fear dying. But for us, you don't have to fear death. It's not the same. Believers have nothing to fear in death. We don't face the coming judgment with dread and anxiety, but with hope and confidence. And please hear this. How can we face it with hope and confidence? It's not because of us. We can face death with hope and confidence because of the blood. Jesus, in praise be unto him, he is going to bring with him a day of final salvation for all who belong to him. And man, I can't wait to hear the music. But not all should wait eagerly. They should wait with torment, dread, Everyone in this room will face the music of judgment. And for some, John 5 says it'll be a day of good judgment. And some it'll say, well, it says it will be a day of bad judgment. Resurrection to eternal condemnation. If you have never come to a point in your life where you've given your life to Christ and you can be sure of that, you have a legal problem. You have a legal problem. And God is a holy and just judge who gets the judgment right every time. And that's terrifying for sinners. It's just terrifying. The fact of the matter is that either you will bear your sin or you can fall on your knees and ask Christ to bear it for you. Man, that's good news. Today I just implore you from a weakened devastated, hope-filled pastor to stop looking for hope in this life. Stop looking for fulfillment here. Look for it in the one who came and died and resurrected and left this life and will one day return. He's calling. And you don't have to wonder and guess who's on the other end. He's made himself known. Let's praise him.